Thank you, Dan and musicians and ensemble for beautiful worship today. We continue our sermon series we began two weeks ago in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 2, comfort zone. Romans chapter 2, comfort zone. The message came loud and clear on a church's answering machine. Five simple words. I don't like Kyle's sermons. I don't like Kyle's sermons. Well, it sort of begs some sort of explanation. So Pastor Kyle found the name, found the number, made the call and said, Hi, this is Kyle Adelman, and I understand you're leaving the church because you don't like my sermons. Could you explain? There was a brief silence. Kind of an awkward moment. The gentleman had been caught off guard. But he started talking, Kyle says, rambling, really, trying to express what he meant. And somewhere in this lengthy explanation, he had said something important. What he said was not meant to be encouraging, but his word caused Kyle to breathe a sigh of relief. Tears came to his eyes. He says, I pulled over to the side of the road. I took out a, a pen and a pencil, and I wrote down what the gentleman he said. He said, well, when I listen to one of your messages, I feel like you're trying to interfere with my life. <laughs> well, whenever I listen to one of your messages, I feel like you're trying to interfere with my life. Kyle said he took it to mean this, I believe in Jesus, I'm a big fan, but don't really ask me to follow, I don't mind coming to church on the weekends, and I'll pray before my meals in the restaurant, I'll even slap a, a fish on my bumper sticker, but I don't really, really want Jesus to seriously interfere with my life. When Jesus defines a relationship he wants with us. He makes clear that being a fan who believes without making any real commitment isn't an option on the menu. Following Jesus is risky business. This radical rabbi who demands too much from those of us who want to play it safe in our faith. Life truly lived is a risky business. And if one puts up too many fences against risk, one ends life by shutting life out. Well, we love to live in the comfort zone, don't we? We want our thermostats always between 68 and 72, and the wife's always 72 and the husband's 68, or, or vice versa. It's never the same in the family, but we have about four degrees that we will tolerate as a difference in our life, and we want to go to the same restaurants, and we want to sit at the same table, and we order the same thing, and we even want the same waiter or waitress because, well... We want to be comfortable. We want a religion that's helpful, but not too bothersome. We don't want a church that's too demanding. You know, just enough so that we ourselves can be considered in the camp of Christ, but we don't really, truly, deeply want to alter our lives. There's a real way in which those of us who've been born 
into the faith are greatly disadvantaged. Of course, I wouldn't have it any other way, but those of us who are born into Christian families become so comfortable with the love of God that we begin to think that His forgiveness for us is our birthright. And heaven is the natural outcome of being a member of our good family. Some of us have never walked on the other side of life. We don't realize the emptiness that comes from being spiritually starved. We have a banquet set before us every single Sunday. All you care to eat. Some of us have small appetites, mostly nibbling on a variety of spiritual desserts. But somewhere down the line, someone in our family proclaimed Jesus as Lord. They surrendered themselves radically to his lordship. We somehow down the line inherited our religion, didn't we? And by the time it was passed down to us, it it was kind of warmed over, having lost its original zest and freshness, kind of like mashed potatoes that sat in the pan overnight. The next day, well, they're just not the same, are they? There is, for some of us, a pathetic familiarity about the faith. We don't know what life is like lived without a Savior. We can't imagine living without the hope that is cast from the long shadow of the cross. We don't know life without the empty tomb of our resurrected Savior. We don't know life without the promise of eternal existence. We, in some way, growing up in church, some of us, we avoided the radical choice to surrender our lives to Christ because it was a natural and expected thing for us to do. We eased into our faith like someone entering a swimming pool that's a little chilly going rung by rung by rung. You ever entered the swimming pool? Swimming pools in Amarillo are just cold. They just are. And you, you go, you try to, if I go slow, maybe... My kids, we go to Southwest Park, the pool there, and they'd want me to jump in and play. And for the first 10 minutes, I would do my very best to swim with them without getting wet. Have you ever tried to that? I mean, I really tried. I wanted to swim with them because they wanted me to, but it was cold. And really, I just didn't want to get wet. And so I'd try to, you know, just put my legs in a little bit. But no, Daddy, jump in and play and wrestle and dunk us and throw us. And so I learned the only way to really swim like a kid is just jump in and shout and scream and go into the water. Some of us are like that with our faith. We never really jumped in. We just sort of went rung by rung by rung, and we tried to follow Jesus without changing anything or losing anything or making a radical decision. Have you ever met someone who didn't have the advantage of growing up in a Christian home? 
Have you seen the excitement of faith for someone whose conversion causes him to have to live a radically different life? For he knows what it feels like to think of death as the end. He knows the the terror of being away from the very forgiveness of God. They know the pitiful results that come upon a family when Christ is rejected and the church is ignored. When there's no family of faith to surround them on their journey. They don't ever want to go back to that. No, no, they run away as fast as they can, away from any hint of life, away from their Savior. For they have truly made a radical, life-changing choice. They have made Jesus their Lord. They've come to realize that he died for them, that literally he died in their place. And they will never forget his sacrifice. Unlike some of us who have always considered ourselves pretty good, they know the depth and the power and the grip of sin. And they will have nothing to do with it. They want to serve. They want to be active like a a kid excited in a candy store. They don't know where to choose. And they volunteer for every position in the church more than any one person should ever have to do. But they don't want to be left out. They want to be a part of everything that's good that First Baptist is doing to spread the good news of God's love through Christ. They're willing to risk They're willing to do things they would never imagine themselves doing because they made themselves available to God. They have let go and let God take control. But some of us, some of us are so familiar with the gospel story that we have forgotten that it's a radical, risky message. We're like the man whose house is right beneath the jet path at the airport. He sleeps all night. He never is awakened by the sonic boom of the jets because, well, he's just used to it. But when someone comes to visit, they don't sleep a wink. We're like the woman who who lives by the French bakery and she has the aroma of the fresh baked bread all day long and she doesn't even sense it anymore until uh, someone comes by and says, what a beautiful smell you have all day long. What an aroma. And oh yeah, there it is. She remembers. We're like the guy who, who runs a jackhammer all day long. He can't even feel his hands anymore. This persistent pounding pulse. The gospel's been so familiar to some of us that we have forgotten it is a radical message with a radical demand upon our lives. It's a very dangerous state to be in, especially when it's the call of Christ and the call of his bride, the church, to which we've become so accustomed that we faintly ever hear it at all. That's the way it is in Romans chapter 2 with the Jewish folk. 
They have been chosen by God, their family, to have a special relationship with him. They were to be his people, and he was to be their God. Now, Abraham, Abraham was a radical, risky follower of God. This God was new to Abraham, a moon-worshiping Mesopotamian. God asked him to follow in faith, and Abraham risked on numerous occasions First, God asked him to leave a good life behind, a life filled with comfort and wealth and family. And God asked him to move from the known to the unknown. And God asked him to find his reward in what he could not see, a great nation, and what he would impart a blessing to all people. And Abraham's decision to follow God was a radical, surprising decision. In Harold Lamb's The Life of Alexander the Great. He describes the consternation which came upon the Greek army as they're marching across Asia Minor for they only had a partial map of Asia Minor and they found themselves, the army, the Greek army, now they were making the map as they went. And now the map that they plotted showed them where they had been and not where they were going. They were in new unknown territory and they were frightened. So it was with Abraham, and so it is with everyone who says yes to Jesus. He will take you into new, unchartered decisions. Abraham was asked to risk it all more than once. His very reward was to rest in the multitude of his descendants given the land and the people. And if God was going to keep God's side of the bargain, then God was going to have to provide a descendant to, to Abraham. But now, finally, God in his old age gives Abraham the son of promise, Isaac. And then God asked him to kill the very son, the only son from which the promise could be fulfilled. And Abraham responds in obedience. He binds his son like a sacrificial beast and is ready to do the foolishness of God. But instead of breaking Abraham, it brings Abraham to the very summit of his faith. God needed to know. Abraham needed to know. Abraham are you still in the radical risk-taking business with me? God speaks to Abraham, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Of course, that story is the forever paradigm of God's only son that was sacrificed. There was no lamb in the thicket to save our Jesus. He was the lamb. God had to see if Abraham was willing to love him with a risky love. And Abraham, he lived life, risk-filled, faithful obedience. He made the radical choice. But what about his descendants? Romans 2 tells us they didn't make the same choice. As the grandchildren and great-grandchildren of Abraham began to multiply and fill the earth, they refused to make the risk of obedience. They wanted to live life in a comfort zone. They took pride in their ancestry, and they simply said, Oh, I'm with Abraham. Whatever he did, put it to my account. 
the most ironic thing happened. Instead of following in the risky steps of their forefather and doing the things that God asked them to do, instead of being radically obedient to God like Abraham and Sarah had been, they refused to obey God. They refused to do what he asked. And they simply said, hey, just think, I'm a, I'm a son of Abraham. Their argument went like this in Romans 2. God made a deal with Abraham. We're on, in on the deal. We are the people of God simply because we're Jews. We do not have to obey God. Our heritage is enough. Through Moses, God gave us the law. He's marked us as his people by the act of circumcision. We don't have to make a radical choice daily to follow him in obedience. We'll just pick the fruit that comes from Abraham's obedience. We can live on the faith of our fathers. In Romans 1.18, Paul has said, The wrath of God is poured out against all ungodliness and wickedness. And then you remember in our sermon in Romans how then Paul points out to Gentile sins. And even as he's doing so, the Jews are shouting, Amen, Amen, Amen. But now in chapter 2, the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness, not only the Gentiles to which they amen, but also now he draws a bead on the Jews. They also, like the Gentiles, are entrapped in sin's merciless power. And despite their posturing as God's unassailable elect, they will be subject to God's impartial scrutiny at the judgment. Look what he says in chapter 2, verse 3 at the end, you think you'll escape the judgment of God? In chapter 2, the message goes like this. God judges all humanity in accordance with the truth that they have. And God will disregard everyone's ancestry and judge according to his or her obedience to the law, whether it's the law given by Moses or the law written on their heart, all will be judged. Look at verse 11. For there is no partiality with God. In 17 through 29, hold it, Paul says, to the Jews in the city of Rome. Your covenant with God, your family's faithfulness, your ancestry cannot be a substitute for your own personal obedience. He says in 17 through 24, you Jews think that just because God gave you his law that you're promised to miss the wrath of God, you're hypocritical, never risking being obedient to God. You go around judging others when you yourself are doing the very things you criticize in others. You sit back and conclude, oh, I'm a Jew and God will overlook my half-hearted commitment to him. Paul charges you disgrace, look at verse 23, you dishonor the name of God. Your relaxed, non-committal attitude towards God is blasphemy against his holy call on Abraham. Look how he finishes in verse 28 and 29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is of the flesh. But he is a Jew who is a Jew inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men. 
but from God. You read Romans 2, and you wonder, how could the Jewish people become so accustomed to the promises of God that they depended on the fierce faith of their forefathers rather than seeking a vital, sacrificial, personal relationship to God for themselves. What about me? What about you? Have we made a personal call? Have we answered that personal call God has on our life, that call from the Christ? Have we counted the cost of following the Savior who demands so much? Have you counted the cost of your actions? Both Samuel Chase of Maryland and Elbridge Gary of Massachusetts were among the original signers of the Declaration of Independence. Samuel Chase was a, a big man approaching 300 pounds. He was asked by Gary, why are you, Chase, willing to sign this document? You have significant land holdings to lose. And Chase turned to frail Gary and replied, it is you who have far more to be afraid of. With your slight build, you'll keep dangling in the gallows while I will only suffer but a moment and die. Have you counted the cost? Or have we simply, like the Jews, sat and pointed to the obedience of our parents and our grandparents and declared, I'm with them? And parents, have you made the mistake of assuming that because you believe it, your children will believe it? Have we casually accepted the God of our family without ever really saying, yes, he is Lord of my life personally? Simply put, have you ever answered the call of Christ for yourself? Sometimes. In churches like ours with a great history of faithful forefathers who took risk and big steps of faith, sometimes we too can act like these Jews. We begin to exhibit a spirit of entitlement, pointing to our past, hopeful because of our heritage. But that's not the way we do business at First Baptist Church. Every generation must start anew by accepting the radical call to relationship and being wholeheartedly committed to this community of faith. The story we are called to tell and live by is one of risk confronted and death embraced. What's more, Jesus calls us to walk the narrow way, to take up our cross daily with him. It's terribly risky business. Just ask the bright martyr, the bright company of martyrs that quite recklessly parted with goods and security and life itself, preferring to be faithful in death rather than to be safe in life. The relation of Christ, the meaning of the atonement, the risk one has to have God at one's elbow, the inevitable result of our salvation means at the foot of the cross, there is no place 
for casual observers. At the bottom, right there where he's crucified, there is no detached ground. There are no uninvolved ones. We are, we are caught here, and we are caught here together, and the cross means we are nailed here. There are no spectators. We are all on the stage. You are in it. The drama of the redemption of the world, but not alone. There are no single crosses on his hillside, not anywhere. All our crosses participate with his and with each other's. Some here, some watching by way of television, and I want you to be wherever you're safe to worship. But no matter where you are, some here today need to make that radical decision that not the God of my grandfather or the God of my mother and my father, but rather he's going to be mine. I won't point to Abraham anymore. It will be my choice, a radical choice to obedience to receive his grace. There's a little girl who said her prayers at bedtime. Her dad stood outside a room just to listen in. She was reciting the alphabet, A, B, C, D, just saying the alphabet. And her, her father came in out of curiosity and said, Honey, when you said your prayers, you were just rehearsing your alphabet. Why did you do it that way? She said, I really didn't know what to ask God for tonight. So I said, God, I'll just give you all the letters of the alphabet, and you put them together, and however they need to be put together. That's what commitment is all about, isn't it? A risky faith that opens up every letter of the alphabet of our lives to God and God's redemption and the gift of his son and the power of his resurrection. We say to God, like Abraham said to God, you put me together however you want to put me together. For I am not God. You are. Some of you here this morning need to say yes. Yes, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. Some of you watching my live stream or, or there in the comfort of your own home, you, you need to say today that your, your life will be a radical decision. To say yes to Jesus. To let him be Lord of your life. It's not something you can ease into. I discovered you cannot swim without getting wet. You cannot follow Jesus without stepping forward radically in obedience. And your papa can't do it for you. Your daddy can't do it for you. Your brother can't do it for you. You yourself Oh, one in the religious community, Paul says to Rome, you must make that choice. Not an outward obedience, but an inward obedience of the heart. Not only our hands, but our hearts committed to him. Of course, you know what Paul's doing. He's leading them to realize they can't keep the law. 
the written law, with the law in their hearts, that they all need Jesus. And he'll tell them that next week. Let's pray. Oh, God, some of us had great grandparents and parents who walked the path of faith and And we didn't make sure it was ours. We just sort of eased into it because people around us expected us to. I pray today, oh God, that beginning with myself, each one of us will say in these dire, dangerous times, it's too serious to play religion. We have to be utterly and totally committed with all that we are. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.